Welcome to the Ask Philip podcast. Today, Philip tackles questions such as, how do I know if I'm diversified? How should I play this oil move? How do I use the insights that I have from an industry to invest? What do I need to look at in fundamentals? What is the importance of global politics in investing? And what is a bailout? With the answers, here's Philip. Alrighty, we're back with another week. This is a pretty cool week. And I'll make the announcement for y'all because it'll be out by the time this episode goes up later today. But my wife actually started a podcast called Ask Kelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y. It's on Spotify. It'll be uh, on iTunes soon. It's actually already up. So it's about food. She's a foodie. Uh, She is as much of an expert on cooking, cuisine, food history, culture, I believe, as I am with money. It's her pastime. She is not labor for her. She just loves it. She actually doesn't even do it, you know, like professionally. She just she just loves it. So check it out. Just wanted to give a, give a shout out to Sweetness on the podcast. Check out Ask Kelly. Uh, she has an Instagram page, too. Uh, look it up. Let's get to the first question of the week. How do I know if I'm diversified? This question is very, very nuanced because this is an artful question. A lot of investing is like science, math, data-driven, quantitative. This part is the the art part because there's no one right answer. I think the big picture answer is you know you're diversified if you have done everything you can to spread your money out to where one issue can't blow you up. So for example, we, we all pretty much know if you own three stocks, that leaves you at risk of um, at a risk of ruin. But what's not as apparent is if you own only United States stock funds or United States bond funds, because then if something happens in the US, that blows a hole in your portfolio. Or if it's only industry specific. So if your entire portfolio is dominated by tech stocks, then that means if tech industry goes down, so does your your net worth. And it, it may not go to zero, right? So if you have only U.S. stocks, it's not saying that the U.S. stocks are all going to go to zero. It just means if we go through a 10-year period of time where U.S. stocks don't do as well and emerging markets or some other asset class does do well, then you, you have a big loss opportunity cost if you're only invested in U.S. stocks. An example of a time period would be 2000 to 2009 was a period where basically U.S. stocks earned nothing, but emerging markets did great. And so that's one of the nuances that you can use to just look at your portfolio, make sure you are globally diversified. But I would also submit that having just stocks and bonds are are not really diversified because stocks and bonds are basically financial assets. You, you you have two assets. You have hard assets and you have financial assets. Stocks and bonds are financial assets. They might move in different ways in the short term type of a recession, but over like a a long period of time because in, in you have cycles that are like 20, 30, 40 years of hard assets versus financial assets. And so you can have a long time where the the, the trend for stocks and bonds are negative and the trend for hard assets are positive. An, an example of that might be uh, the 70s. The, the 70s stocks and bonds basically, especially when you factor in inflation or the rising cost of living, they didn't really earn much. And I believe, in, let me not say it, bonds were just terrible. I'm, I don't remember what the actual return was, but 
bonds were terrible, but gold and commodities did relatively well in the 70s. And so those are hard assets. Uh, also, you know, real estate did relatively well in the 70s. And so those are hard assets. And they they tend to, in the long-term cycle, counterbalance each other. And so when you have your portfolio, you want to think about the hard asset versus financial asset portion. Now, saying this, it doesn't. So people might say, well, Philip, does it mean I should put an equal amount of money into financial assets and hard assets and an equal amount of money in, in the stock portion into stocks and bonds and an equal amount of my stocks into all the major countries? Um, no, not really. That's not how you do it. It's a bit more nuanced than that. And also, there are just different times where the season might say, hey, maybe you want to overweight hard assets to financial assets, or maybe you want to overweight U.S. assets to emerging market or U.S. stocks to emerging market stocks. Or maybe you want to overweight you know, bonds in a recession, depending on where we are in the long-term cycle. So all of these things depend on economics, political, you know, what's going on in politics, uh, your individual financial plan, because if you're closer to retirement, then you just are naturally going to have more bonds and cash than a 22-year-old, you know, for the most part. And so there's a lot of things that, that go into it, but these are just a few things to look at to understand and know if you're diversified. I will say most people I see their portfolios, whether it's uh, them doing it on their own, or if they have a commission-based salesperson, you know, that they still com- they get paid a commission to sell mutual funds. I typically see like a hodgepodge of stuff, so it's going to be they're way under diversified because they have too much money in one asset class or one area, or they are over diversified. They just have a lot of duplication in, in what they're doing. It, the, they might have three funds that are all buying the same thing, but they see they have twelve funds and think they're diversified, but it's all owning the same thing. So. Or a couple of them are duplicate. So that's diversification. Next question. How should I play this oil move? So I got this question a couple of times this weekend. And for those of you who don't know, I'm going to give context. So I can't remember what day that was. Maybe it was Monday. But oil um, went negative, right? And specifically West Texas crude oil. That's, that's basically, for lack of better words, the oil that American markets dominate. And what, what basically happened was Oil, whether it's West Texas and regular oil by OPEC, and I'll explain, and I have an episode on OPEC, so you can check that out at a later time. But it had been trending down. But what happened with West Texas crude oil, and this had been happening all month. I have been following this monthly, monthly at the at the out of the market. There are some people selling oil for like five dollars a barrel or one dollar a barrel because they didn't have anywhere to put it. Um, because there was so much supply of oil and there wasn't enough storage. And so you have in the futures markets, you have speculators and then you have the actual like producers, people who who make it and use it for stuff. And so the speculators basically were like, well, listen, I don't want to be in a business of storing oil. You know, there's so there's so much of it. And when the contract came due, well, well A, it was dropping and the contract came due. They had so many contracts. They had to say, hey, listen. We don't have anywhere to put this. We can't take uh, delivery of it. And nobody was buying the contracts because it was dropping so much. So it went negative, meaning they're saying, hey, I will pay you to store this oil. I don't have anywhere to store it. That's why I went negative. It was still in line with the long-term trend of 
I mentioned deflation, depression, not a lot, not a lot of money in the system, a lot of debt in the system, demographics, all that stuff. So we're still on that trend. But that's basically what was happening with oil. And so the questions people were saying was, Philip, since oil is so low, should I buy it basically at this level? And my deal is there's things called value traps, right? Value traps are, it happens all the time for people that are beginners. They'll see something low and they'll think, oh, just because it's low and it's going to come back, I ought to buy it. I'm like, well, the value trap is you put your money in something and it stays there for 5, 10, 7, 8, 9, 10 years, 15 years. And it doesn't come back above that price that you bought it for for a long period of time. Going back to what I was mentioning before with diversification in a previous question, just because you buy something, as a matter of fact, Google this, Business Insider 155-year history of oil prices. And it'll give you a visual chart of oil prices over the last 155 years. And you'll see there's multiple 10, 20, 15-year periods of time where oil does not get back to its peak. And I understand that we're nowhere near the peak, but my point is you can have what's called dead money for a long time. And what's also, what you got to balance when you're investing with losing money is also losing opportunity costs. Meaning if you have 100000 to invest and you drop 25000 in something just because it dropped and that 25000 could have been spent in something that's, that has a more high um, percentage chance of, being higher in five years, then not only did you not make money, then you lost the opportunity cost to actually make the money you could have made. So you missed out, right? Your money is losing money and then it's not making money, which is a double whammy. And so when you're investing, going back to what I was saying before, you want to understand the economics. And this is imperfect math, but something like 50% of your investment return comes from the economic environment. Another 30% comes from the industry, which also has a factor of economic environment. And the last 20% is investment selection, which really kind of has some impact based on the economic environment. But economic environment is really, really important in the investment process. And if you think about like the facts, right, the facts are the world is the growth is slowing around the world. There's a trend, right? Started in Japan in the early 90s. The U.S. started slowing down. Europe started slowing down. U.S. is slowing even more. China's finally slowing, and they were the ones holding the world up over the last 20 years. So there's slowing growth. There's an older demographic in the developing world, developing meaning U.S., Europe. China has the one-child policy, and they got to deal with that, which is slowing growth. You have too much debt in the system. You have all these deflationary or slow growth components going on. And in the middle of that, you have technology advancing, which is making us more productive, which means we need less resources. You have the advent of electric cars and Tesla going mainstream. You have this new virtual world that we're probably going to live in for the next two years, which means lower need for you know for for energy products. Uh, you got climate. You have all these factors that are like negative on oil. Could things change? Yeah, but. I always like to explain investing like some people play spades, some people play dominoes. I don't I don't know blackjack or poker, so I, I don't speak on that. But, you know, going to dominoes or spades, it's kind of like if you play with somebody who's a beginner, they mistake winning a hand with playing the hand appropriately, right? You can win a hand by luck, but the skilled player knows that if you play, the, the law of odds are in your favor. So if you play enough times, the person that's playing the hand the right way will win more games than ones that's just playing haphazardly and getting lucky, right? And so 
looking at this move, the cards are saying, oil is not a good bet, right? Could you buy it and get lucky? Potentially. But I, I would submit that most people who are looking to buy oil right now are looking for a short-term come up. That's really what it is. They're saying, hey, it's super low. I think I can buy it now and make some money over the next course of the year. Mm, nobody does that. That's lotto ticket thinking. You got lotto ticket thinking. Sure, some people hit the lotto, but not often. So don't be short-term. Don't have a lot of ticket thinking. Let's move to the next question. How do I use the insights that I have from an industry to invest? So this is a question. I, I have multiple clients in different industries, and they feel like because they're in in the industry, they feel like they know more than most investors about different companies in the industry, which is true, but it's deceptively true because the market is smart. Is the market wrong at times? Mm, yeah. But for the most part, like, the market is super smart, and the market being the collective amount of people looking at the economy, different stocks in relation to each other, coming up with a price that's re repricing every second, every minute, every day, every week, every month, right? So the market is really smart, and beginners are maybe a little bit too much arrogant in their ability to understand that they don't know more than the market, even in their industry. For example, I have to give, I have to tell, I have to explain to. to you know, a client of mine, and she was like, yeah, yeah, but this, that, and that. I say, listen, I've been, I'm a finance major. I've been doing this for 14 years. And you listen to my podcast, you've read my book, you know what I'm talking about. Like, I'm, like, in my industry, I'm not saying this, you know, cockily, but I'm I'm in the 1% of the 1% for what I understand. Because most advisors are just selling products, selling a piece of product. I'm, I'm one of the rarities that actually, like, manage money. I own my own company understand economics and how everything comes in and so um and i'm like listen and it's not an ego booster just test me ask me what you want and i understand it because i put in the multiples of ten thousand hours to do the work and the study but even with that kind of knowledge i don't think i know more than the market about buying companies in this industry right i don't think because i have insight i can tell somebody whether charles swab or td ameritrade is a better buy i can read balance i can look at that i'm in the industry I have my intuitions and my thoughts. It's like, you know, right now I got my Saints shirt on. I got my opinions on the Saints, you know, and, and, and their odds. But I'm not going to make a bet on that. I'm going to let the market give me an, a, an idea of if I'm right. Because if, you know, if if the market is for the last 12 months, for example, and this is, this is a, a super simple version of like how I might look at it. But if over the last 12 months, Charles Schwab is doing better than TG Ameritrade, I'm like, well, man, they must be they must have a better business model than to the Ameritrade, right? And I'll do some work on that. It doesn't mean that the market is right, but it means I'm going to respect the market and I'm not going to think that I know, you know, more than the market. And again, there are small periods of time, and I'm going to give you an example where insight might be helpful, but we got to be in like a weird paradigm when people are ignoring truth. So let me give you like an example of what I mean by that. So it's, it's not my industry, but I'm a small business. I advertise, right? And so I've, you know, done all kinds of advertising. And for the last two years, people have been getting excited about tech stocks that weren't making any money, right? Just garbage companies. Like they were not, like if you looked at the math, they were not even making money. And some companies were doing a lot better, you know, than, than Facebook or Google. And these companies were soaring, but they were not making any money. Uh, and, and if you look at the advertising industry, the, the leading companies were still Facebook and Google. So the market had that right. But individual investors were in the tech space. They were chasing shiny things, right? Things that don't make money, which just common sense says, 
If they make money, it's not going to just the math doesn't add out. And they were ignoring Facebook and Google, which even despite being in front of Congress, getting bashed and everything like the stock was still going up. It wasn't skyrocketing, but it was still doing way better than the S&P 500 in relative terms. And so what I said was, hey, I'm an advertiser. I understand the industry. And I thought Facebook was a better buy um, because of being a practitioner and they provide the best bang for your buck from a cost standpoint. And then the market was confirming it because of the price movement relative to the S&P 500. And with all the negativity, it was still going up. Uh, and the other advertisers, the old stodgy, you know, I think they call them Big Five or Big Four, like they were just getting crushed. That was an example of me being a practitioner and seeing things and doing research, but then realizing, hey, you know, my in- my intuition was right. But I validated it with the market and I had a a variant opinion of because you can also put them in tech stocks. So I had a variant opinion from the market on tech stock space, but it was variant in relation to trash companies that just common sense says what goes up must come down if it's a trash company, right? So that was kind of on topic, off topic, but it gives you an example of when you have information and then you do all the other work, right? Um, you can combine the two and make a good decision. Question four. What do I need to look at in fundamentals? So I get this all the time. I just went ahead and write, I just wrote out, like I have a screen that screens for fundamentals and I'm just going to give it away on the podcast because I'm keep emailing some people and I just want to reference the podcast. So what do I look for? It's a few things. It's I want the earnings per share to have been growing during the past 10 years. People say, well, Philip, what's the company hasn't been around for for 10 years? Well, it's going to rank low based on that rating, right? Revenue has grown during the past 10 years. Five-year average return on equity is is greater than than, than 5%. Return on equity basically tells you how good is the management at using the resources, basically, in a simple simple terms. Minimum gross margin, I want it to be greater than zero. So what's minimum gross margin? Company's net sales minus cost of goods sold. I want it to be greater than zero. The book value per share. Book value is like a calculation. You back out like um, intangible assets, like goodwill and everything, from the actual balance sheet to get book value. But I want that to be greater than zero current ratio current ratio i want that to be uh, greater than one current ratio is going to be super simple terms it's going to measure like how fast they can pay back short-term debt right so they have some short-term liabilities they have enough cash to pay that off quickly relatively quickly i want the company that have not missed a dividend payment I want the debt to equity ratio to be less than 13, meaning they don't have a lot of debt. I want the average cash flow over the last 10 years to be greater than zero. And I want long-term debt that's less than five times net income. Again, low debt. So you can see these factors are going to have me miss a lot of good companies. Like Tesla doesn't pull up in this screen. A lot of good companies that I like don't pull up in this screen, but it screens out a bunch of non-financially strong companies and it's it's a weird thing financially strong companies over time outperform non-financially strong companies and i've wondered why it should become apparent that like that just kind of makes sense but i think the reason why it does is you know during the market cycle people like shiny things people are markets and people tend to overreact and underreact and when the market picks up people like to look for shiny things and they ignore the good quality companies 
because they go for shiny things and the ones that are just consistently buying the good, fundamentally strong, boring companies they win. It's like it's like the tortoise and the hare story we learned. The hare got too fancy and the tortoise won because the tortoise was just consistent and kept going down the road. And so I'm willing to miss some of the shiny things because the tried and true has historically worked for a long, long time. So those are what I screen, what I screen for fundamentally when I'm looking for individual stocks. Number five is going to be number five is going to be my investor mistakes segment. So investor mistake, greed, greed is a big one. I kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, but greed is one where you're looking for short term gain. It shows up multiple different ways. So it can be it can be short term gain. It can be, hey, I don't want to put any money in passive long term investments, because if I put it back in my business or in this real estate project, I can compound it a whole lot faster, ignoring the, the fact that you're over-concentrated in one asset class and you're not diversified. That's another form of, of greed, restated as only thinking about making money. And if you talk to people who have made money and kept money, they'll tell you it's not hard to make money. It's real hard to keep it. If you want to make money, be real short-term, right? It might land you in jail based on the conversation that I, that, that I had with one of the best audio engineers in Texas, Steve. But it's a side note, we were talking about somebody who took some shortcuts who ended up, you know, going to jail. But shortcuts lead to negative things almost always. And you may not think of it as greed. You might think of it as, no, I'm just being like wise with my money. I'm like, okay. But if you're if your strategy is short term, that means you're in the greed zone. If it's long term and you're truly thinking long term and not just about making money but keeping your money, it's hard to be short term and have greed if that's your thought process. So just make sure that you know you're not in greed if you're if you're thinking long term and you're not just thinking about making money, you're thinking about making it and protecting it. And that's a good way to get out of that headspace. I actually do have a sixth question today because it came up this morning. What is the importance of global politics in investing? How old was I in 2008? I was 24. So it had to be 2007. So I was 23. I graduated, was in my first or second year in the business and I couldn't tell you how I how I heard about Barack Obama. Like nobody knew about him. Like nobody. But I heard about him some way. A client of mine bought me tickets because he's going to be in San Antonio. And this is how I know it was early on. Nobody knew about him because it might have been forty people who showed up to the deal. It was not the Obama that fifty percent or sixty percent of the country grew to love and know. And most of the world grew to love and know. It was like through that where I start really getting curious about politics about two thousand seven. And so you know I like money. Uh, and I like running businesses, and so that's my passion. But politics has always kind of been in the peripheral. Like, I just was interested in what was going on, and I didn't really understand until I started really getting into economics, and I realized, man, like, these are intertwined, like, economics and politics. Understanding that is important, understanding, like, money. Because if you miss the political element of it, um, it's it's going to affect your investing. Let me, let me give you a, a real specific example. Trade policy is an example that can affect your portfolio. Open trade policy does well for financial assets, for the most part, everything being equal, stocks and bonds, right? Stocks and bond markets love that. When trade policy, when everybody wants to protect, when protectionism kicks in, people want to no longer go where the most efficient way to buy goods and products is, which is closing borders, that's when hard assets tend to do a bit better and financial financial assets tend to do a bit worse. And And it has a relation, right? Because if financial assets have run up a lot and they're kind of way out of whack and then you start having closed trade policies 
then the the correction is greater, right? So understanding politics and trade economics is, is important, right? Understanding the politician. Are they are they conservative or liberal, right? Are they a populist or a globalist, right? Which people think is a bad word, but it's not. That's the non-mainstream media that makes that negative. What's negative about people getting along in the globe? I don't know. Convince me. You also have the budget deficit and where money is spent, right? The central bank, them printing money, why they print money, what they're going to do next, right? Understanding their incentives for what they're going to do uh, and that people say central bank's not political. Yeah, right. They are political um, because they're people. People are political. Like we started as kids. You know, politics is, you know, doing things that don't make sense because of influence or doing things that make sense because of influence. But politics is like influence, right? So that's important. And then specifically in the context of where we are like right now, right? So again, I mentioned in a previous episode about the new world order because Ray Dalio wrote a great, I mean, I told you about his book before, but he's writing another book. And so if you follow him on LinkedIn, he's writing another book coming out in the fall and he's putting the chapters out uh, on his LinkedIn page periodically. So he put chapter two out of this new book yesterday. I stayed up last night reading it. I encourage you to read it. Uh, go to his name is Ray Dalio. Go to his latest blog post. Um, but what he what he talks about is the history of where we are right now. And then you, and, and what you'll see is, and it's, it correlates with what I was already talking about, but what, you, what you'll see is, okay, now we're at a period of time where there's just a lot of printing money and we're real close to like having to have a new world order or a new financial system. And so if you think, okay, what forms a financial system, right? It's, it's economic, it's technology advancement, right? So the industrial age came about because Britain was able to produce goods and services faster and more efficiently and that transferred to the U.S., right? And we took over. And then military power, right? So you can, so you have a technological in advancement that makes you a better exporter to the world. And you have the you have the might to, to to protect it, right? Think of like the mob, right? You know, or or drug cartels, right? If you can sell a product, a better product that's cheaper, and then you can protect your territory, right? You make more money, right? Governments are the same thing. They're just like big mobs or big 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 drug dealers, <laughs> big gangs, you know. And so so then you start thinking, all right, who produces the most now? What's the trend? Okay, whose military has you know what? Who has the most hard assets in reserve because gold is a factor too. Whenever you have these resets, typically people that have the most gold also have more power. I think in when the, the last regime changed, 1945, when the U.S. became the world reserve currency and it was the establishment of the new world order, we had like two-thirds of the world's gold reserves and we did 50% of the world economic output, right? Those numbers are changed now. But you want to understand all that and then you can say, okay, so who's on our side? And then who's the opposing side and who's on that side? Because people are counting countries out without realizing it's not just the country, it's the allies, right? And it's the military. And it's not just the companies are broke because if we can't amicably solve it as a global community, then the fight breaks out and you're like, okay, who's going to win, right? Which side is going to win? And you got to factor in the the military and then who has the money and the resources and who are, gonna, who are they going to back? Because a lot of these wars were also influenced by who was able to get the most money in whatever form it is or get, you know, borrow the most money that was going to benefit economically, right? And so I'm 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 going on a tangent because I'm getting a little nerd I nerd out on this kind of stuff. 
<laughs> but, the, but the point is, it's kind of like a big puzzle and you just want to pay attention because it influences investing, right? It absolutely influences investing. So question number seven. Philip, what is a bailout? And I added this last minute because I feel some kind of way about bailouts the second time around, especially now because you've had all these free market capitalists and I'm a free market capitalist. And I'm going to preach for a second because the, the last few years have revealed a couple of things, right? You, you have people who claim to vote a certain way because of morals, and then they vote for somebody who has no morals, right? I would have much rather them said, hey, I'm voting for this person because I'm a Republican and I believe in, and he's a Republican. Cool. Don't before that and after that say, I only vote for Christian candidates. No, you don't. Like, that's 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 out the door, right? And I know, and I know this is not a political podcast, but I'm just, I'm just speaking my truth right now because I... I vote for Democrats. I voted for Republicans. It's not that. I don't like hypocrisy, right? And so that's kind of hypocrisy number number one. Hypocrisy number two that's happening is you have all these free market capitalists. I mean, I'm a free market capitalist. It's like I'm a, it's like I'm a Christian, right? And now you have all these free market capitalists that when we're saying, okay, I understand that you want to bail out these companies because they didn't have, you know, they couldn't control what happened because of blah, blah, blah. I like, but on the other end, before this happened, we had people that would have medical issues or they couldn't control where they were born or who they were born to, or they couldn't control whatever. And and you would call them a socialist because they needed some government assistance for their life. And I'm not saying one or right or wrong. I'm just saying you're talking out of two sides of your mouth because this is socialism, right? If you, you were such a free market capitalist before this happened, and now you're a socialist, but you don't want to call it socialist. You, you, you're saying... Oh, this just had to happen. Yeah, but people who want to do it before, you called them a socialist, right? So I'm saying, I'm just saying, understand that neither side is right, but let's not be hypocritical on both sides, right? Because let's understand that there, there actually is no, no such thing as a free market. <laughs> you know, there's variations of it. You know, you have China that's moving more towards capitalist and you have European Europe that move more towards socialism and you got America that's, you know, rel- you know, that goes both ways and relatively in in the middle, but more capitalist than most, which I personally like prefer, right? But let's go to the bailout, right? So if we've established the hypocrisy, understand why I'm calling this a bailout socialism, because people don't understand what a bailout is. A bailout is just wiping out the shareholders. It's, it's a change of ownership. So, so for example, let's take an airline. If an airline goes, goes bankrupt, they're not going to stop flying planes. They're going to be flying planes tomorrow. It just wipes out the current owners. It says, Hey, look, y'all took a risk, right? Respect the game. You took a risk. You lost all your money. Now you file through bankruptcy and then you get new owners that have money um, that, that are going to buy the airlines because they've because it's super cheap. Bankruptcy makes things super cheap. Think of it like when you buy distressed real estate. People understand real estate. You, you see a house you like. If an owner goes bankrupt and the house goes on auction, you can buy it for dirt cheap. The house doesn't go away. The house is still there. It's still the same neighborhood. still a great place to be. And so you you have all these, quote unquote, free market capitalists complaining. And I'm saying that so you can understand why I just I dislike this hypocrisy, you know, asking for money, saying, oh, but but we have to. No, you don't have to. You don't. You actually don't have to. You borrowed all this money and you did all these buybacks for years. You didn't have cash reserves. Right. Because when the shoe was reversed, you why don't most people have enough money to, you know, survive three months or they don't have enough money for this? I mean, it's been like, what, a month and y'all are already crying, right? It's been a month and there's companies that claim that we, we, 
you know, we had to have it. What happened? To, like, why don't y'all have six months of reserves in the bank? It's, I mean, I'm a finance planner. I talk to my clients about doing it all the time. What what makes a company different, right? And again, I'm this is not a political conversation that I'm having right now. I'm I'm not. If you really know me, you know I'm I'm about one of the most middle of the road um, folks. Like I'm I am more of a libertarian, and I wish that we had a third party because I would vote libertarian. I, I don't I don't love everything Democrats do. I don't love everything the Republicans do. I think they're both hypocritical. I think at some level of politics, you have to have some hypocrisy because you got to come to a, um, a middle term. I just don't like the narrative of how they uh, ignore the hypocrisy. So this is not a political conversation. This is just speaking truth, right? And the truth is a bailout is socialism for you know for these public, public companies that can just be wiped out and get new shareholders, right? I'm more of a fan of using the money to help the local small business and the people where that would be way better for the system if you're going to use it, not bailing out um, these public companies that have, there's plenty of money out there once they go bankrupt and restructure to make it work. That's my two cents on there, y'all. That's a, that's a first for me. I hope y'all appreciate that, that, that emotion that I threw in there about bailouts because it really like pissed me off this morning. So y'all enjoy your day. If you are interested in having a review of your portfolio or to see how far on track you are with your retirement goals, Philip offers complimentary consults through his company, Stonehill Wealth Management. For more information, log on to StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. That's StonehillWealthManagement forward slash talk. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.